I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to the Syrupcast, Mobile Syrup's Canadian tech-focused podcast. I'm Patrick O'Rourke and Brad Bennett, a man who refers to himself as the bad boy of tech, but that I call Mobile Syrup's teen correspondent, is once again across the internet for me at an undisclosed location that mysteriously looks like the driver's seat of a $200,000 Porsche. How are you doing, Brad? I'm doing fantastic. I wish I was still in the driver's seat of the the Porsche Taycan or uh, Taycan, but uh, maybe I'll get another opportunity soon, it seems like. Um, but yeah, so far, so good. Uh, I just got out of that Porsche experience, which, which we'll talk about a little bit later in the uh, podcast. So as you can imagine, I'm pretty ecstatic. Looking forward to it. I, I hope to hear about you Tokyo drifting the car around uh, Niagara Falls. That's, that's, that's all I care about. <laughs> Took it over the falls, yeah. Um, and then on this week's podcast, we also have John Lamont. How are you doing today, John? I'm doing pretty good. I'm no longer in a basement. Uh, I actually moved since I was last on the podcast. So I'm now in a, well, technically it's still a basement, but it's mostly above ground. So I have windows and lots of uh, beautiful sunlight. It's really good. Windows are sick. I can I can confirm that they're great. Mine are are pretty crappy and super drafty and need to be replaced. But you know, light light's a good thing. It's a good thing to have. I love yeah, it light. Is, makes my uh, my photos a lot better. Although yeah, you had like a really like amazing sorry, Pat, but he John, you had an amazing thing going with your like nano leaf, like dark, moody, very colorful shots before. Like you were definitely yeah, blown away with those. Um, He's still I'm going to try and recreate that here. Uh, I've been yeah. able to do it a little bit, but um, we're still kind of in the process of unpacking some things and we want to get a shelf for the office. Uh, so that's kind of next on the to-do list. And then I'll kit that out with all my lights and it'll be good. But for yeah. now, you just have a couch. I, f- I feel you. The apartment life, it's like hard to dedicate uh, space to be like a single photo zone. It's like, Okay, yeah. this has to be photo zone, but it also has to be Alex's desk when she's here and this. And yeah, so it's not uh, not easy to set all that stuff up for sure. Mm-hmm. So this week's episode is all about Apple's new M1 Mac lineup and my experience with them. But we're also going to talk about Bennett driving fancy cars uh, around Niagara Falls because that was a super exciting opportunity. Uh, but as always, uh, Bennett, do you want to hit us with the hottest news of the week before we get into all that? This just in, Qualcomm has announced a new Snapdragon 888 processor, which will be its flagship processor for 2021, I guess, probably for the whole year. That's usually how things work. Um, and I know, John, you've sort of done most of the reporting on this one. Can you take us through any, are there any highlights beyond like 5G performance and speed improvements? Like what beyond those two things are we looking forward to? Yeah, so the main things that Qualcomm focused on with their Snapdragon 888 announcement was uh, improvements in AI processing and improvements in uh, photography. Um, it'll 
we'll have to see how that actually plays out in real world performance. But if what Qualcomm is saying is true, uh, it could be a pretty significant leap. Um, I know with the AI, they measure it in Terra operations per second or tops. So the 888 uh, Qualcomm says can get up to 26 tops compared to 15 in last year's 865. So that's a pretty big improvement. So we'll see how that plays out in real world performance um, with on-device, you know, machine learning and AI um, mm-hmm. applications yeah, no, that's and fair. stuff like that. So um, definitely the it'll be interesting. That's gonna, the first phone that's going to have the 888? Uh, it'll probably plus. be the galaxy s21 which s21. is going to launch next year or uh one plus if they launch one before samsung there's always kind of that weird race where like a bunch of companies are like we're going to be the first one and then usually the first phone that actually arrives is the s20 or the samsung whatever the samsung is um but some chinese brand will be the first to announce a phone oppo yeah which is basically one plus at this point yeah yeah so, yeah <laughs> Um, I remember one no, year there was fair. like a weird OnePlus was like, we're going to be the first ones to announce it. And then they weren't. And there was like this weird kind of like mix up where they said that they were going to. Yes, and then they I didn't. remember that. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah, I do remember that as well. Yeah, it's actually interesting. This uh, AI core stuff. And I know that's not the exact term of it, but it, that's something that was also like prevalent in the M1 Max. So it, it's, uh, I guess, telling to see ARM or Qualcomm kind of do the same thing with its ships. So it looks like, you know, that's just becoming a thing that we'll see. And yeah. maybe, well, who knows? Maybe they've we'll see been doing like- it for a while. Um, I think that was something that really was big in mobile for the last few years. Um, and like, I think a great example is is Google's Pixel because they had the their Pixel imaging chip. I don't remember the actual name, but they had a chip in the Pixels for handling all the imaging processing and machine learning stuff that they, they were doing there. Mm-hmm. And then with the Pixel 4a 5G and the Pixel 5, Google was like, we actually don't need to have our own custom silicon in there because Qualcomm's uh, onboard AI processing hardware is good enough now that it can do the same thing. Interesting. And we trust that? What do you mean? Do we? I guess we have to, right? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, like in my testing, I didn't notice any significant difference in image processing on the pixels compared to last year when they still had Google's own imaging chip. So fair enough. Seems to check out for me. But yeah, that's it about the 888. Is there any other like lower cost chips or anything? Like um, I know the 888 is the flagship, which cool name, by the way, I guess, in terms of. This is a hard thing mm-hmm. to say. It, yeah, it, is, it is hard to say. But it's cool. It's like 007. It's got a cool ring to it. You know, it's better than the yeah. Snapdragon 865. Eight, like, 888. Yeah. As far as I know, they didn't announce any other uh, chips, but I fully expect Qualcomm will have a range of uh, 700 and 600 series chips uh, that will launch probably shortly. Um, last year, they did. They launched the 865 and the 765 at the same time. Um, but then we didn't really get any significant 765 phones until later in the year. So mm-hmm. they yeah, might just be I'm... holding on, on the 788 or whatever they choose to call it. 777. Yeah. They might have to do more restructuring of their like business model as chips get more powerful and, you know, phones start to realize like we don't need the top of the line chip in all of our phones anymore. Like maybe they don't sell as many and they sort of have to like 
restructure their release date similar to like NVIDIA where they release the really expensive hard, uh, hardcore high-end ones first and then like the lower-end ones kind of trickle out throughout the year afterwards. But um, we won't waste too much more time on this. We'll move on. So uh, the Canadian government is looking to add taxes to digital services. So that's stuff like Netflix and Spotify, uh, which has been going on for a long time. Or not been going along, but this conversation around adding taxes to these digital power players, which aren't like Canadian businesses, but operate or uh, sell their services in Canada through the internet. Um, And it seems like it's going to happen, but people are now worried that the taxes are just going to be passed on to consumers, you know? So Netflix gets taxed, but it just raises its price appropriately to sort of offset that cost and pass it on to consumers, which... That is is what's going to happen. Are we happy that this... That's all I have to say. Is this terrible? Is this like thing that we thought was good just going to be bad for us now like we were like oh tax the tax giants like make them pay because they have the money and, and now like we're just going to be paying the money that they're being taxed is that what's going to happen uh it definitely kind of sounds that way which is incredibly unfortunate for uh consumers especially uh canadian consumers because we already pay a little bit more for netflix thanks to you know differences in in price uh um, or currency fluctuations or what I can't think of the term exchange rate. Exchange rate? Yeah. The so value we, like of the we, Canadian dollar. Yeah. So there's there's differences in price there. Um, Netflix just raised the price in Canada for uh, I think it's top two tiers. Um, yeah. And to get hit with another price increase shortly after because of this tax is not going to be great. For well, the, to be clear, t- we, don't, we don't know for sure that's going to happen, right? Like that's just... The assumption from from several experts no one's no no tech giant quote unquote um particularly netflix has announced anything specific about plans to to change prices yet so i mean it could not happen but uh everything points to at least some sort of a minor increase occurring in the next couple of months mm-hmm. and, it, and we're using netflix as an example but if it happened it could potentially affect netflix prime videos spotify YouTube premium. So if you're paying for like three or four of these things, yeah. maybe they all get a hike, which would really suck. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say oh. pretty much any service could be affected by it. Yeah. So that's that. It's um, a bit somber news. So I'm going to move on from that one as well. Uh, but earlier this week, I think it was I think it was Monday, actually. But uh, there was a Nintendo Switch update that basically made sharing sc- screenshots from your Switch a lot better. And it made cloud saves a lot better, specifically if you own two Switches, which I know isn't like a lot of people. But if you're in that boat, you're going to be really happy because... Cloud says before we're trash. Uh, basically, yeah, I, I'm excited for this. It's out now. Have you signed up for it? Like, have you downloaded it? I haven't downloaded it yet. I was going to get it this weekend. Um, I'm excited to install it, I guess I should say. Fair enough. Yeah, I set it up when I was writing the story. And uh, yeah, it's awesome. Like you just basically previously, if you had two switches, so I'm going to use the game Hades as an example, because I've been playing it a lot across multiple switches. So I started Hades, prof- uh, Hades profile on my switch attached to my TV. I call that my like console switch. Um, started there, and then when I went back to Renfrew to visit my parents, I brought my Switch Lite, because that's sort of like my portable Switch, um, left the other one for my girlfriend, and played Hades again. But when I got there, I had to physically go into the Switch's settings, find Hades in data, save management, cloud saves, whatever, and then download the save files. So when I started playing, my save files were there. If I was to do that on Xbox across two consoles, as soon as you started playing, it would sync with the cloud, and your save files would just come automatically. Um, which is kind of like what Nintendo has done in the update, but there's still like one little hang up. Basically, now if I went and now that I've set up 
cloud saves between those two. Previously, before the update, when I went back from my switch light to my home switch, I would have to re-download the saves from the cloud again to that switch. Now that I've set that up and downloaded the saves from each switch once, they should download automatically in the future. Does That's that make really sense? Cool. Or is that crazy? Yes, it makes sense. The screenshot stuff's also kind of neat because I'm used to occasionally grabbing my own screenshots for like a story I'm writing about the switch or a game or whatever um, for the website. And I'll like tweet that screenshot out, save the image and then delete it. And now I won't have to do that. Um, right. There's, there's like a, a Wi-Fi connection sort of thing that lets you upload your screenshots directly from the switch to your phone. Correct. Yeah. This is super smart. Cause like, yeah, you want to share your screenshots on your phone. It's like, you always have it with you. That's where your photos are. You want to be sharing them from your phone. Um, you can't fit your switch in your pocket really, but yeah, basically there's like a QR code system. So when you go into the gallery on the switch, you like hit share photo and then send to phone and it pops up a QR code and you scan it and it basically connects your phone to the switch's Wi-Fi. So there's a direct connection uh, through Wi-Fi, which isn't passing internet, but it's still passing data through wireless protocol from your switch to your phone. Then a second QR code pops up, um, which takes you to, I guess, like a website. Um, so I found like this works better on phones that have a data connection as well, like an Android phone that didn't that have a SIM sense. card in, uh, didn't work all the time. Sometimes they did, but it was more hit and miss. But yeah, and then you scan that, it takes you to a website, and that website is basically like a temporary website hosting up to 10 screenshots that you can transfer at once. And then you just click on them, save them to your phone as you would normally save images from uh, a website online. And you're good to go. And it's super streamlined. So I'm not, I'm not sure if the Xbox One does this, but I know with the Xbox Series X, if you capture a screenshot or a video or anything like that directly on the console, it now uploads to like your your Xbox Live account. And then you can access that same clip from the Xbox app on your smartphone. I think that it's on the Xbox One as well. It is. This was it like is. A, a, I can a unified dash. Okay, perfect. It's been there for unified a while. Unified dashboard yeah. update. Um, um, it's pretty cool. I, I, I guess I only discovered it somewhat recently. It does take a long time to to upload um, video from the Xbox to the cloud, but it's definitely easier than sitting there and like editing it on the actual console itself, which is which is frustrating. So it's cool to see Nintendo taking some steps to to modernize the way that it approaches like online stuff, because that's a long time coming. Um, can you, uh, can you save photos from the Xbox app to your phone? Yeah, it's the same thing. Screenshots and video. Okay. So like, here's a throwback. It, 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 like, I'm going to like do this sort of shameless plug promotion for a like crazy podcast. listeners. same for you guys. Um, but back in the day when star Wars battlefront one came out, I used to play that game a ton. And just like I played it so much that I just like was like bored with the multiplayer. So there was like a few weeks where I just ran around with all of the like HUD elements turned off and I just took screenshots. (laughs) (laughs) And I have an Instagram account called Battlefront Lines. That's just full of all of those screenshots that I took (laughs) from the game. It's actually sick. I love it. I think they're great. Um, But when I did that, I had to take the screenshot on my Xbox, open the Xbox app on my phone, screenshot the photo from the Xbox app to the photos app, and then like crop it appropriately to get like the black bars out from the Xbox app because there was no way to natively save the images from the Xbox app to uh, your phone. With with this, you like, so you have to save them from the Xbox app, at least on iPhone. It just like you open it and you click save as and it shows up in your in your photos feed. I'm not sure how it would work on Android. Yeah, probably similar, but that's good. I mean, that was like a necessary thing that seemed like such a huge oversight in the past. Uh, So I'm glad that they did this. But yeah, 
you want to see cool Star Wars Battlefront 1, not the original Star Wars Battlefront <laughs> 1, but the original Star Wars Battlefront 1 for Xbox Images, Battlefront Lines on Instagram. It's there. And that was about a week of me playing around. Enjoy. Um, and then, uh, sorry, just back to the hottest news. The last thing is Salesforce bought Slack, which uh, is kind of just crazy. It was like $27 billion purchase US, which is like $35 billion Canadian or maybe more. Either way, it's a massive amount of money um, for Slack, which is basically just like a really in-depth group chat platform. Um, like, I, I part of me wonders if they could have bought Discord cheaper, and like just because it's basically the same. But yeah, I have, I have two thoughts. So one, I, I don't really know what Salesforce is. <laughs> Man, I tried so hard <laughs> like to figure a... it out. And like you, well, you read the article. It's like I basically yeah, just yeah. like reverted to being like, all you need to know is it's a giant company, and you can go to this website and read like a very jargon-heavy <laughs> explanation. But I don't know if it's going to help you because it didn't help me. Good luck. <laughs> I don't really know what it is either. I know it's like a B2B um, chat and services platform that that really means not a lot. Um, I think the one thing that I'm afraid of is I like Slack. Like I know there's a lot of people out there that hate it and think it's quite bloated now that it's tried to replicate the functionality that Teams, Microsoft's Teams platform offers. But I like it. It works. It works for us. It's pretty versatile. It's compatible with all kinds of different plugins and apps and stuff like that. And it's in an integral part of the mobile stirrup workflow. So I'm a little concerned about what this means for, for Slack in the future. And I hope that it doesn't either like get killed off or come into this, like transform into this, like exclusively B2B service. Cause that's, that's not uh, what I personally need in my life. Yeah. They didn't seem to have any specifics on like what Slack itself would become. Although because they bought it for $27 billion, I have to imagine Slack has been a very successful company, so I can't imagine them wanting to like tear down what has been built there. So um, uh, what I was reading is they haven't turned a profit for the last three quarters, despite it being like a global pandemic and people working from home. Wild. So I think it's valuable, but whether or not it's profitable, um, at least in its current setup, is is still questionable. I think they'll probably be like, less free slack accounts is, is my expectation and then and, and more paid stuff hitting hitting the service but that they'll keep it roughly the same um operating the same as it does now that makes sense. yeah um, i wouldn't be surprised to see a significant changeover in terms of what the free slack offers versus paid yeah. and potentially mm-hmm. paid ties in paid tie-ins to you know salesforce software and and other business stuff I don't know. I can't even imagine like some of the stuff that they would do, but because like, I don't know, I look at teams uh, from Microsoft and like the main teams thing is like primarily free, but it's all very heavily tied into, you know, office and Microsoft's business tools and, and all that software stuff. Right. So it's like teams on its own is just, you know, messaging, but where the value for Microsoft comes in is it kind of pushes users to use all of Microsoft's products, which then is where they make their money. So I wouldn't be surprised yeah. to see something similar uh, happen with Slack and Salesforce, but what that would look like, I don't know, because I don't really know what Salesforce does. Um, what are the they things sell, that... They sell force. <laughs> yeah. One of the things yeah. they mentioned was using like the Slack interface to and like integrating that into Salesforce. So like whatever the Salesforce software is, it would look more and act more like Slack, it seems like. So in my mind, that meant like, you know, Apple iMessage is like something everyone uses on their iPhones, but there's also like a business side to iMessage, Pat. Yeah. I, I kind of yeah, think maybe there's something uh, like that. It, 
it only know. launched in Canada a couple months ago, but uh, it does exist here. It, 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 to my understanding, it's very similar to what Salesforce offers, like a, um, a customer to business chat platform, like for customer service and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think Salesforce does a lot of stuff too, like tracking metrics and like audience data and like all sorts of other things like that. But anyway, too much time of speculation on Salesforce. Can I talk about the Porsche now? <laughs> You, you you can hit it up. Is it is it Porsche or Porsche? How how do I say this as a person who knows nothing about vehicles? So my whole life I have been saying Porsche, uh, but I have been told that it is Porsche and it is so it is not that the Porsche stupid. Taycan, it is the Porsche Taycan. That, that is, is horrible. Correct. I hate it. I'm gonna call it Porsche still. <laughs> <laughs> I think I like Porsche. I don't All know right, if it's so... because it sounds like horse or what, but anyway, yeah, not a big deal. Um so, with with this event, I, I don't know a ton about it. I know that you were driving a very expensive, very fancy car. We saw images in Slack of said vehicle and it looked super cool. I'll sort of just throw this to you and let and let you take it take it away. Like what's unique about this car? Why were you driving it around rural Niagara Falls? What was this event? What was the experience like? Um, kind of explain that for the for the listeners. Um yeah, it's basically just like uh, the PR agency representing Porsche is trying to like get back out there because of with COVID, a lot of like in-person events haven't been able to happen this year and, and things like that, as you know. But so they wanted to do something smaller scale was basically just like let people take the cars out and drive them by themselves for a while. You know, no events, no going anywhere crazy, just like kind of go near Toronto, drive around and enjoy the car uh, and learn about it. And why it's important is because this is Porsche's like first full electric car and it's very competitive with tesla although like very expensive because it's a porsche that said it's an amazing car i mean interior exterior uh all of it put together is just like a fantastic driving experience like a very high-end driving experience like where there are things where like it just feels so nice and like it's (laughs) it's so nice that you don't even want to touch the steering wheel like you want to wear the gloves not because they're cool but because you're like i want to keep the integrity of the steering wheel because it's so nice so I should wear gloves when I touch it, um, which is like crazy. Uh, it's super, super fast. Uh, it like accelerates faster than gravity. So it gives like this in- incredible feeling of like butterflies in your stomach while also being kind of like thrown back That's in cool. your seat. Uh, you know, when you're like going down a country road and you're like going down up and yep. down hills and you get that butterfly feeling kind of roller coaster Yep. Uh, you can pretty much almost do that like whenever you want in the, in the Porsche, just anywhere at any moment. Um, That's sick. Yeah, it, and like it has this very faint sound. I'm not even sure if it's the sound or just the sound of like the tires in the road, but it's very silent. But it just kind of gives you enough to go like this oomph. Um, but then you can also like through software turn on a sound called like sports sound or something like that. Uh, and it, it sounds like a space like <laughs> like when you hit the brake, it's like <laughs> like it, it like like decelerating spaceship sounds and like. I'm just going to cut out that noise and put that at the beginning of the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's super cool. Like I remember Alex and I were driving around and we just were uh, like going to Walmart to get some snacks and we're just cruising around the parking lot looking for places like take pictures because it was nighttime. And so we're looking for like street uh, street lights and stuff to take pictures under. And I just like had it in sport mode. I'm just like driving this car that should be silent, but because it's so cool, I just love it so much. And it sounds awesome. I was just driving it with the sound just for fun. Um, which is like, I think what it chalked up to be the most is just like, yeah, these really expensive driving experiences, like the reason you buy a Porsche or you buy 
you know, the Tesla Model S or something more expensive um, is to get this like really incredible like car experience. And in my limited time with it so far, and I should get a little more time with it, I think um, that it, that it makes up for that. Like it's it's crazy. You know, I'm a very like value so, oriented person. So like I own a Jetta that like I didn't I, you know, bottom of the line kind of thing. Like I like to get the most value I can out of things. But I fell in love with this Porsche when I when I sat in it and I drove it around for two days. It was just fantastic. It, when I had to get back in my Jetta and drive home, I, I remember just like I was driving down the, the Don Valley Parkway and I just like floored it and, and like went nowhere. And I was like, huh, <laughs> back to normal, back to real life. Eh? Yeah. So but before we move on, two questions for you. One, you'll have some sort of a story on mobile syrup next week about it. I think it'll be a little longer than that. I'm thinking okay. probably closer to two weeks. I have just uh, this like Nest Audio Amazon thing, which I guess I could probably swap the timing of the two of them if I wanted to. And also that GM Canada interview. And I'd like to get the GM interview up uh, as my next as my next thing. And then the Porsche after that, I think. And then my second question is, how much does this vehicle cost if someone were to go out and purchase it? And are they actually able to buy it? Like, is this a concept car or is it something that you can like go to a Porsche dealership and, and actually buy? You can you can buy it. Yeah, I think you may have to order. Like, I don't think it's something that will be like at every dealership just because it's so new. And so like, you know, it's not like every Porsche owner can get like it's expensive. I think it starts at like 146,000 uh, for the model we were driving, which is just the basic 4S. Uh, and I'm like the, the worst use of the word basic there because it's anything but. Um, and then there were two trims above it. And I think they go up to 200,000. Nice. Um, okay. Yeah. Cool. But even the basic one, I mean, one hundred forty-six thousand. You mean like heated and cooled seats, front, back, like four touch screens, like driving gloves, beautiful like leather seats, RGB lights inside, and then oh, also that's it's a just killer feature. It's the most that, important part. <laughs> a car yeah. that accelerates faster than gravity. A four door car that you could fit uh, like four people in. It's not super big, but like it's a four door car, and you you sit in it. And it feels like you're in a spaceship driving to the moon. Like it's incredible. It's nice. Awesome. Okay. So that's the stuff about Porsche. Now we're going to move on to the M1 Mac. Uh, we're a little bit late on this one. I think my story went up a few weeks ago at this point, but I, I still think it's something that's important to talk about. I'll, I'll give like a, a brief two minute intro uh, regarding what my experience is, and then we'll move into the discussion. Um, but so basically, Apple released a new M1 powered MacBook Air, MacBook Pro, and Mac Mini. The M1 is Apple's new proprietary chip processor that's been rumored for, I don't know, like close to five years at this point, and it's finally out and it's available. Generally, I was really impressed with all three devices. The chip is extremely powerful. It's benchmarks higher than anything Intel has on the market when you're comparing comparable chips. Everybody was extremely positive about it in terms of like YouTubers, reviewers, tech bloggers, etc., it's a little surprised about that because I did run into several quote unquote minor issues with it during my time with uh, all three devices. For one, Adobe software pretty pretty much runs solid on it through Rosetta 2 emulation. That's Apple's emulation software that powers any Intel apps on the M1 Max because every single app needs to be reconfigured specifically for this chip. That's something that I think uh, we haven't seen a lot of people talk about yet. Generally, Adobe stuff works fine. It's not perfect. I, I did have the app crash a couple times, uh, Photoshop and Lightroom in particular, 
I did run into issues with um, addition loading really slowly, that sort of thing. And I think that all relates back to emulation. Those are things that will likely improve in the future as Apple um, fixes up the emulation aspect of, of the of its Rosetta 2 software. But also, we're waiting on M1 apps because, like I said, every developer needs to reconfigure their app to be compatible with this uh, these new chips. And that's the big the big problem here. I think some of my other problems were very like, I'll, I'll call them like Patrick specific. <laughs> I, I hate two port uh, Macs. Like I've always been frustrated by the MacBook Air. There's like all kinds of issues that this resulted for me anyways. Um, like I, I use uh, a Bluetooth Logitech mouse and keyboard with the unifying receiver. I got to plug that in. I use a monitor that is plugged in via USB-C. I, I got to use that as well. So that takes up two ports automatically. So We'll, we'll get into it later, but I, I started um, kind of, I, I, I've tried a couple of different hubs, but I ended up with this one from CalDigit that we'll talk about later that solved a lot of those problems. But I think that that's enough of, of me, me babbling about the Macs. One of the things that uh, I'm curious about in particular, Bennett, I, I know that you were hyped for these. You've been waiting for them for a really, really, really long time. I know you're likely impressed with the benchmarks like, they're crazy. Like when you actually just look at them on paper, like the the M1 MacBook Air benchmark higher than the most recent 16 inch MacBook Pro with uh, I think it's an i7, which is just like bananas to me. Um, yeah. From your perspective, are you interested in buying one of these right now or are you more on my side of the fence where it's like these are really cool? This is great. This is the right step forward for Apple. But you're waiting a little bit until the third party software starts to catch up with the M1 chip. Um, yeah, basically I, I am waiting and that's only because like my current computer situation isn't terrible. Like my home desktop is sort of a gaming PC, so it's more than capable Two monitors. Nice. Love it. Um, and then my older 2016 MacBook pro still works. And like, if I need to work on it for a few days while I go somewhere, I can make do. Um, although I want one of these so bad. I do. I love it. I love that we went back to no fans. The MacBook Air is now just a slightly bigger MacBook, which is my dream come true. Um, and it's like super powerful. Like the only issue is the MacBook, uh, like the 12-inch MacBook is what I'm referring to here, is that it wasn't powerful. It was like this beautiful machine. It was super little, super cute. You like fold it up. Almost felt like you could put it in your pocket or throw it like a Frisbee. Um, but then you open yeah. it up and it was a fully-fledged computer. It was awesome. Um, and now the MacBook Air is that, but even more powerful. Like multiple apps can be open at once, which is a dream come true, right? Like <laughs> you don't have to open only one app at a time, which is just crazy. Um, but yeah, yeah I, I, think... I couldn't, I couldn't get the fans to turn on either. We'll, we'll talk about that too. But like, I just, I was pushing them to their limits, quote unquote, in terms of like how I use a computer. So it's connected to an external monitor. It's docked, it's plugged in, whatever. Mm-hmm. But I have like Photoshop, Lightroom. I have uh, Edge open. I have several Edge windows open. Edge isn't even like a native uh m1 M1. app yet it's emulated through rosetta right um and sure it's like a little bit slower than it is um running on an intel mac but the experience was pretty crazy in terms of just how much i was able to have open at one time um and before i throw it back to you i'll I'll make it i'll correct myself because i know someone someone will call me out on this so uh the m1 macbook air uh the m1 macbook air is more powerful than the 16-inch MacBook Pro with an Intel Core i9 processor in terms of multi-core performance. So it wasn't even the i7, it was the i9 
which is even crazier. And that's the 2019. That's that's insane. Yeah. Have there have that, there been any? Oh, sorry. No, you go, John. You go. I was just gonna say it's amazing, basically. <laughs> like. Yeah, I was I was just gonna ask: Has there been any comparisons between the M1 and desktop chips? I know it's not really necessarily a fair comparison, but I'm just kind of curious how it stacks up to like an i9 desktop chip versus the i9 mobile chip. So that that's a good good segue into what we're gonna talk about. I I wasn't able to do those comparisons because I don't have a, a, a desktop with a comparable processor. I haven't seen much about that either, um, but that would be really interesting. I think one of the things that's important to note about these chips is that they're all clocked at the same speed, but that based on the thermal architecture of the different devices, some are more powerful than others, if that makes sense. So like the MacBook mm-hmm. Air doesn't have a fan, which I know pleases Bennett immensely because he hates fans. I do. But the I MacBook had to move Pro my has desktop a fan. further away from me because of the fan noise. It's like now just because <laughs> you can hear like, it. Yeah, it's like around a corner, kind of just like out of my view now. Because now, yeah, I'll be able to keep it like out of sight, out of mind, out of ears. The, the, so the the MacBook Pro has a fan, um, and the Mac Mini has a fan, and it's like a little bit of a, a bigger casing. Um, I, John, I was hoping that you could sort of explain the logic, or not not even the logic, but just explain what that means in terms of like actual real world use when someone says that like a device doesn't have a fan or it does have a fan and the ones that have a fan are able to sustain a heavy load of, of processing um, longer than their counterparts that are, are fanless. Yeah. So at a very basic level, um, any sort of computer chip, whether that's your CPU or your GPU or, or your um, RAM, your memory, whatever, they all have like a level of performance that they can run at or at like a maximum or peak level of performance. And at any level of operation, they're going to generate heat. That's just kind of how computer parts work. Um, as you know, you put electricity through the chip, it's going to generate heat um, as, as it operates. Um, and when it's operating at peak performance, it's going to be outputting a peak level of heat. So essentially um, how thermals kind of impact everything is it's all about heat management. And you can do that through a couple different ways, um, uh, mainly through a passive or active cooling. So that would be having a fan versus not having a fan or, you know, having any form of, of active cooling, like a water cooler or something like that. That's actively okay. taking the heat out of the system. So, you know, with the M1 Max and it is specifically um, – the M1s that are that have fans attached to them have a system that's actively removing heat from the system. And that means that these chips can run at their peak performance for longer periods of time before they have to throttle down to stop heating up. Whereas the, I believe it's the M1 MacBook Air doesn't have the fan, right? Correct. Yeah, it, do, it doesn't have a fan. And that was the only one that with what I do, like in... I don't do tons of like video editing or anything like that. That was the only laptop that um, I did encounter significant slowdown when I was doing uh, like video rendering testing, or I was Mm -hmm. like exporting the podcast with it, that sort of thing. And the reason why is because there's no fan. The only way to cool down the computer is to actively reduce the performance of the chip, which is, you know, called thermal throttling. So essentially you have, you know, there's going to be temperature sensors in there that are monitoring the heat that the chip is outputting. 
And there's a breakover point where it's going to say, okay, it's too hot. So we're going to cap the amount of performance that the chip can reach temporarily until it cools down again. And then we'll let it hit that peak performance. Um, so without any sort of active cooling to remove heat, it just kind of has to rely on the system of throttling performance to maintain a certain level of heat. Um, and kind of depending on, you know, what the overall heat output of the chip is um, and what Apple felt was acceptable in terms of heat kind of all go into the thermal performance of the chip. Um, and the nice thing about ARM uh and ARM-based chips like the M1 is that ARM is pretty good when it comes to using a lower amount of power and consuming less energy, which which helps with heat output. Uh, x86 chips, like what Intel has, on the other hand, tend to run at higher uh, energy consumption levels and produce more heat just by the architecture of the chip. And things like you know smaller uh, processor nodes, like five nanometer process. Um, can help with that, but just kind of from an architecture perspective, um, that's why Intel has kind of struggled, I think, in laptop chips because they've had a really hard time going down to the smaller nanometer uh, process and they've had a hard time. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I'm kind of making their architecture more efficient uh, when it comes to low power uh, applications like laptops. And that's kind of why ARM so is huge in phones. You mentioned ARM, right? So yeah. this isn't the first ARM-based processor. This isn't like a new thing. You've used ARM-based devices before, like the Surface Pro X. But the experience, and, and like I know I was pretty critical of of certain aspects of like the actual hands-on usage of these new M1 Macs in my story. But when you have spent time with the Surface Pro X, you, you've had quite a few issues with the emulation, right? Yeah. And there's a few things to kind of keep in mind here. Um, so for one, the emulation that the MacBooks do is a fair bit different from what's built into Windows. It's almost so, like translation, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah. what what it is, is both, both Windows on ARM and Mac OS on ARM have a translation layer. On Mac, it's uh, Rosetta 2. I don't know if the Windows version has a specific name or if it's just emulation. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head. But the main difference is that the M1 chip in the MacBooks has to some level a hardware capability for processing x86 instruction sets. So what that means is Rosetta isn't completely translating everything. It's only translating what it needs to, and the M1 is able to just natively run some of the instructions. Whereas on Windows, whatever software emulation that Microsoft has in Windows for translating x86 apps to ARM is doing a full translation. There's nothing that the ARM chips in Windows machines can run natively. So that's where you're getting a huge performance hit. 
Um, and the other part of it is just the M1 chip is significantly more powerful than any ARM chip that's available for Windows right now. Because if you look at it, like most of the ARM chips that are available for Windows are Qualcomm chips, uh, Qualcomm compute chips, which are kind of just souped up versions of its mobile chips. So you're basically taking a smartphone chip, uh, maybe making it a bit more powerful and sticking it in a Windows laptop and saying, all right, let's go. Um, and there's also the uh, SQ chips that Microsoft developed with Qualcomm for its Surface Pro X line, um, which are souped up versions of the souped up compute chips, um, for lack of a, a better explanation. So you're basically just running mobile chips, whereas, you know, with Apple's M1, my understanding is that M1 was fully designed as a laptop uh, computer chip. It's not a f- they didn't take the chip out of their iPhone and then tweak it a little bit to make it work on a, on a MacBook. They just designed it from the ground up for um, use in the MacBook. And I think there's also so some one of the cool stuff that, that they're Apple... doing with uh, memory as well. I, I remember reading about um, the M1 and how uh, it places RAM and memory differently on the actual uh, chip. So it's a lot closer, um, which can reduce latency and stuff like that. So there's a lot of really interesting stuff that they're doing at a hardware level that helps with performance in ways that people don't necessarily realize. One of the things that Apple emphasized a lot um, in the briefings that I intended following the reveal was that Rosetta 2 and the M1 were built at the same time. So like you talked about, they're designed to work together from the ground up. And that's part of why the emulation is is better than at least what we've we've seen on the the Windows side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I know we briefly talked about this a little bit, and I kind of kind of skipped over it. One of the biggest issues for me with the 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 MacBook Pro um, as well as the MacBook Air is the fact that they only have two Thunderbolt three ports. That creates a lot of problems for someone like myself who has all kinds of accessories that they want to plug into their computer. I have a USB C monitor. I have uh, a Logitech keyboard with a unifying receiver. I have like a USB-C SD card reader. It, it, it just makes things more difficult and not and not as seamless. I picked up this thing called the uh, CalDigit T3 Plus that has all kinds of ports on it. It's got like two Thunderbolt ports, um, tons of USB-A ports. It's pretty much solved all those problems. But that's not something that I even needed to consider before with like the Intel four port um, Mac. Bennett, do you do you see this as a problem as someone who's interested in the air? Uh, I think I think that's what you want the most, right? Is the air that's the one that you're the most excited for because it's it's fanless and like the smaller body. Yeah, um, like I do. do you it, see this as a problem? Kind of. So I don't know. Like it depends on sort of like what angle I look at this from. You know, it's like do I want this to be my do everything computer where I work from it at the office at home where I have like desktops with big screens accessible to me and like enough power that it's not really necessary to switch to a powerful MacBook or is it just like this like thing I take on the go and when I go into events I'm happy that I have a computer that lasts for 18 hours and can also edit some video on the side because it's yeah. power um, which I think is kind of the lens that you have to look at it through. And I think that's the lens that I looked a lot at the uh, 12 inch MacBook through, which only had one port. Um, but that said, I don't know, man, the two ports, it does suck. Like it, if I wanted to put it on my desk right now and attach it to all the accessories that were here, I don't know if I would be able to, like I have two 4k monitors on my desk and an SD card reader. And I would ideally like to have all three of those connected, you know, like, like even if I was even if power, we were traveling, power right? And like, 
even if I was traveling again and like the air or the pro was my go-to laptop, um, I would still be docking it like at work and it would be docking it at home and it would be using an external monitor. So like to me, I, I get it. Like I know that you could just use it on its own and it would be fine. And like the battery life is, is crazy on the pro and the air in particular. Mm-hmm. But I, I just come back to like I buying a dock sucks. Like this thing is $250 or something like that. Yeah, that's crazy. I, I don't I don't want to I don't want to have to do that. But you have to if you're going to plug all this stuff into it because Apple chose to not put four ports on it. Uh, which I think is a really, really weird decision. I know they say like this is replacing the two port MacBook Pro. So that that's why they did that on the Pro. The Air only had two ports before, so it makes sense. But I don't know if I, I really buy that. I kind of wonder if it's like a limitation of the M1's architecture. It has something to do with like Apple's license to use Thunderbolt technology from Intel. There's like something weird going on there. And then on top of that, before we, before we move on, I'll just mention this, like, one this of the, is the big issues that, I, that I've encountered with the Pro, and I literally seem to be on an island on my own with this to an extent, is my monitor. I have a BenQ 4K HDR monitor. It's great. I love it. Use it for gaming. Use it for work. It's great for editing photos. I connect it through USB-C. It's not a Thunderbolt monitor. It's a USB-C monitor, which still works with the the MacBook and the, sorry, the MacBook Pro. And when I use it with my Intel Mac, I don't have any issues. I plug it in, it gets 60 hertz, 4K. I scale it down, I think, to like 1440p or something like that, because 4K like makes everything zoomed out. So I, I scale the um, uh, the user interface, I guess, is that that's the way they, they present it in, in Mac OS. But with the Pro with an M1, it doesn't matter how I hook it up. I could use USB-C. I could use DisplayPort through an adapter. I could use every dongle under the sun. I have like a million dongles for different types of connections that I've collected over the years. And nothing will allow that monitor to output at anything above 30 hertz. So you go from like this nice Apple MacBook Pro display to a 30 hertz like 4K monitor. Um, and you're like, you, you can see the trail of the pointer and like you can see it almost lag as it goes between the two things, to, oh. between the two displays, like if you have them extended or whatever. And I it had just, a similar it drives issue. me crazy. Earlier this year with my MacBook, just because it's an older one, some of the ports didn't support, like you yeah. had to find the right ports and write it after similar issue, but not exactly the same. But just from that issue, I can say like, yeah, going from 60 FPS on the MacBook and then going to your display at 30 FPS is just brutal. That's the main reason that I decided to switch to my Windows desktop back in early quarantine is because my, my MacBook just was not playing nice with these 4K displays. I'm not using the M1 right now because of this problem. Like yeah. it drive, I, 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 I picked up, I got this, I didn't buy it to full disclosure. I got uh, uh, CalDigit to send it to me, but I'm, I'm going to be going to be writing about it at some point. But even through that, it didn't solve the problem, right? So there's it's some kind of like compatibility issue. And I know that I've seen posts on, like I saw Mac Rumors posts in, in their forums. I saw like Apple help posts in Apple's official forums about people having similar issues with 4K monitors. But um I, I'll just I'll just say the actual bottle number of the monitor in case anyone out there's uh, has the same has the same problem. It's the EW3280U from from BenQ. I know there's another BenQ monitor that some people are having problems with, but they've they've found like workarounds. There's literally nothing that I could find to solve this issue. I have like an Apple support appointment next week, and I'm sure they're going to tell me to do all the stuff I've already tried. Uh, I think li- 
it's a software update, right? Like that's, that's, that's what this has to be. Um, or possibly there's no solution to it. And it's a limitation of the, the M1 architecture. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and like, I, f- I fully understand that this is like a specific me thing. Like it's a, it's a niche monitor. Um, it's me using the laptop docked if I didn't dock it, or if I had like, uh, that like LG ultra fine monitor, I probably wouldn't be having these issues. So like, I do understand that other side of it, but from the way that I use Apple's laptops, it has not been like a perfect experience like other people have described. Yeah, there's just so many variables involved with like <laughs> finding refresh rate problems. Like, am I in the right cord? Do all the ports supported? So like with USB-C, yes, HDMI and DisplayPort, there are just so many different um, variants within those standards. And like, even that sentence sounds like very non-specific, even though it is specific. But like, yeah, like you could have USB 3. Point whatever or HDMI 1. Point whatever, and they just won't do the frame rate that you need. And you would never know because most of these cords don't come with tags that say like, this is what I can do, this is what I can't do. Yep. Yeah. Um, A lot of people were like, you're using the wrong you, you, Thunderbolt slash USB-C uh, cord. So like I went out and I bought a very high-end one from Amazon. Same results. It's it's literally on the the Apple side with the M1 chip. Like that's all I can think of. I don't think there's anything, um, like maybe some kind of like compatibility update from BenQ. But I, I really do think it's on on the Apple side of things. Yeah, if um, it all works fine with I, your older Mac, then yeah. At the same so time, I think John? yeah, I think there's something to be said for how impressive it is that Apple rolled out these new uh, computers with a significant processor and architecture changeover. And, you know, one of the most significant issues you've had is with compatibility with a, a monitor, right? Like yep, there's true. so many worse things that, that could fair. happen with software not working and stuff like that. And the fact that everything else works as well as it does, I think is incredibly impressive and um, just a, a huge credit to Apple's engineering and, and their work with this chip that it's as good as it is, um, especially given everything else that runs on ARM. I mean, we don't have any Mac OS stuff to compare to, but on the PC side, like it's just been such a mess for so many years. And to see Apple just kind of show up and be like, hey, here's our ARM transition. And it's as smooth as it's, it's as it's been incredibly impressive. Yeah, Apple hasn't done anything very uh, Apple like in a while. And this this probably is it. You're right. Yeah. Does that make sense to you guys? Yeah, it does. yeah, it does. You know, the, they used to be like, that's kind of the the iPods out. Buy it now, and you'd be like, oh my god, the iPod, it changed my life. And like now that they did it again with these Macs, and we, no one believed that they were going to work. And for the most, I part, thought it was going to be a nightmare. Yeah, for the most part, they do. Which is, yeah, you're right, John. Very positive, and I think that is probably the better angle to take on this because the issues mm-hmm. are few and far between, and and seem mostly software related, as in they'll be worked out in a year or less. Yeah. Right. And that's, that's not to downplay any of the issues or Mm -hmm. like say that anything that you've experienced, Pat, isn't important because it it is, and it's important to document and say, Hey, you know, these monitors don't work or these peripherals don't work or X, Y, Z. Right. Um, But it's, it's all about balance, I think. And, you know, no, I get it. Yeah. I, yeah. I think a lot of it comes down to like how I use, Mac devices, right? And this kind of segues into the last thing that I wanted to talk about before we we wrap up was like I I use Apple devices. I use the iPhone. I use Macs. I have for several years now, but I live in a third party software world. So whether that's Adobe or um, Google software or Edge or 
Chrome or Spotify or what have you. I don't, I don't use a lot of Apple apps. I use their hardware, not their software. I think that there are a lot of people out there like that, but I'm probably in the minority uh, in some respects. So one of the things that I talked about a lot in my piece was I was worried that developers weren't going to start pushing out M1 apps or M1 optimized apps rapidly. That sort of has happened, but it also hasn't. Like there's already an M1 version of Chrome that came out after I wrote this story that is like incredibly fast. It's probably the fastest browser that I've ever used. And that's crazy for me to say, given that it's like Chrome and fast in the same sentence. Um, I guess what what I'm interested is, and, and I'll throw this out to both of you, is like, do you think that we're going to see developers adapt their apps to the M1 chip. I know that Adobe has announced some stuff. They haven't said anything specific about the entire suite. I know there's a lot of other software that people use out there on, on Macs that isn't something that Apple makes. Do you think we're going to see developers quickly adopt the M1 or is it going to be like a, sol- a slow trickle over the next couple of months? Yes, absolutely. Next couple of years. Um, I, I think it'll be faster than that. And there's a couple of reasons why. One, um, a lot of developers already use Mac. Um, and this has kind of been something that's Good been point. true for a while, but you see on Mac OS, you see a lot of kind of smaller indie developed tools for all kinds of different stuff. Um, because true. developers are, are using Mac to build whatever they're using it to build apps. They're using it to build software and whether it's for Mac or iPhone or for PC or whatever, there's a lot of developers that are using Mac. Um, and because of that, you see a lot of these smaller apps and stuff like that come out for Mac that address little problems, right? Like a developer might go and they're using their Mac and they're like, oh, there's no Windows snapping thing like what you have on Windows where you can drag all the windows around and snap them into different positions. So they're like, I'm just going to build one for my Mac. And then they like put it up so that other people can use it, right? So because of that, because a lot of developers already use Macs, I think we'll see a pretty quick transition to ARM. And the other part of that is because the M1 chip has been so impressive off the get-go, I think a lot of people are going to be like really hyped about it and really on board with it. It's not going to be like the Windows situation where Microsoft has been slowly trying to make this happen for years and it's still at a point where it's kind of arguably not quite there or quite quite not quite ready enough for like daily use for the average person. And because the numbers aren't there, there's no incentive for developers to put in the effort to switch to ARM on Windows because nobody's going to use the stuff. Whereas on Mac, in a couple of years, every Mac that you buy is going to be using Apple Silicon, uh, all the developers are going to be switching and upgrading and are going to have to make these changes anyway. There's a lot more incentive and a lot more reason there. And the M1 is just that great. So developers are going to be like, if I change and optimize for M1, what cool stuff am I going to be able to do? What impressive stuff am I going to be able to do? How much further can I take my app? So there's going to be this whole environment of like just taking advantage of M1 and seeing how far that you can actually push it. I think that point you had about, um, what was it? Not the one about developers using them, but like, yeah, people upgrading over the next few years at Max and all of the Macs being M1. It's like, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Like um, on Windows, it's like, yeah, the Surface Pro X is really the only like semi-appealing 
ARM-based machine. And in the Apple world, all of them are going to be ARM-based machines in a few years. So you're right, that that should accelerate the timeline faster than I'm expecting it to be. And they're not just going to be ARM-based machines. They're going to be appealing ARM-based machines because the performance yeah, level is good point. so impressive. Mm-hmm. I'm just worried for like things like, you know, like uh, Photoshop and Lightroom seem to be coming out. But what about Illustrator? You know, if you're a graphic designer, that's like yep. your main go to app. That's and you my don't concern. Have that. And um, like everybody has these like one or two key apps that they need for work. Um, and I'm just worried about like bad stuff. You know, the big stuff is coming. I'm sure the Adobe suite will will come someday. And I'm sure like the email app that I love Spark will probably come someday. Like those people are pretty on top of things. And yeah, it's you're right. You, It'll probably be faster than I think. What do you guys think about like these two devices look the same as their Intel counterparts, right? But I hate that. At least in my I, I know you hate it. <laughs> <laughs> at least in my mind, like that was just so they could get these out there, right? I we've already seen reports about this, but when do you guys think we're finally gonna see the full like quote unquote, I keep saying that during this podcast, quote unquote, it's like my new thing here, <laughs> but um, the full redesign of both the pro and the air that everybody knows is eventually going to come just like the thermal architecture of these chips, like has to allow that, right? It's just a matter mm-hmm. of time. I, do you guys, I, when do you think that's going to happen? I think the next major MacBook refresh, um, I know there was rumors that you wrote, Pat, about there being new redesigned MacBooks in early 2021. Mm-hmm. I can't really see that being the case because they just released new MacBooks with the new M1 chips. Um, but like if they did something in late 2021 or early 2022, that wouldn't surprise me. And I think there's a bit of strategy here. I think that the reason the new Macs look the same as the Intel counterparts is because Apple wants the focus to be on M1 right now and then once Man, you're coming with like the smart takes today that yeah. makes so much sense <laughs> i i prepared i i read over Jeez. the notes and i prepared yeah no it's like apple just launched this huge new change this new m1 processor yeah. this really really significant change apple wants the focus to be on m1 so if you if they released a new macbook that was you know crazy new hardware with a new screen and all this other stuff Everybody would be like, oh, wow, look at this new display. All this stuff is awesome. And the M1 wouldn't be as much in the spotlight. But right now, because there's nothing different between the Intel and the M1 Mac other than the M1, that's what everybody's focusing on. Um, And I think once we get to a point where there's a significant increase in developer adoption and transition to M1, um, and once everybody's kind of moved past the honeymoon phase of you know, loving the M1. And once Apple's kind of spruced up the their M series Apple Silicon and maybe they have an M2 that's that's ready to go or something, you know, that's even more impressive. They're gonna launch it with the full redesign and we're gonna have huge hardware changeover. We're gonna have a much more stable Apple Silicon environment that's, you know, kind of out of its beta phase, if you will. And there's going to be a huge amount of incentive for customers to switch over because not only are you getting the awesome new M1 or M2 or whatever the hardware is at that time, you're also getting a huge hardware refresh and that's going to solidify and kind of finalize the change to Apple Silicon and ARM-based stuff. Um, So yeah, that's kind of where I see it going in the next year or so. That makes a lot of sense. I I can only other see see it going one other way, which would be like they do the redesign in early 2021 just to keep the MacBook hype train 
rolling full steam ahead, you know? So like mm -hmm. this end of 2020 M1 release, early 2021 new MacBook design release, or possibly, I guess they can also do like the MacBook 16 inch, MacBook Pro 16 inch and, or, and the Mac Pro with uh, M series chips that support graphics cards or to be, you know, enough maybe to keep the train rolling a little longer. Um, and then to do the full like new M chip plus redesign, everything putting it together. But um, just based off what you said earlier, where you were talking about like sort of developers getting in and, and the hype and people looking to Apple and Apple sort of like doing this the right way um, makes me think that maybe they might do like a little more just in terms of showmanship, just to keep like the Mac hype alive, because I don't think it's been this big in years, not even the 16 inch MacBook Pro. You know, yeah, Maybe. that's that's definitely true. Um, I can see but that I, being I still a thing like as your well. idea. It makes uh, it seems to fall together perfectly. It's like a puzzle. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's, still... it's all speculation. I don't know what Apple's going to do, but to me, that just kind of makes the most sense. Is keep keep the hype and the focus on Apple Silicon, and then uh, once Apple's ready and once it's kind of stabilized, then give people the the other hardware incentives to make the upgrade and finally ditch Intel. Do you think that I think that's what do... I would be waiting for? Yeah, me too. if I was gonna like go get a Mac right now, is is the redesign? Like we all know it's coming. I think that that's what would make me go out and buy one. Um, that said, I wouldn't be super disappointed. Like if I had a really old Mac and I had to buy one of these new M1 Macs, uh, I don't said M1 ones, but the one of the M1 Macs, I don't think I'd be super sad. I think they're pretty good. Like they're nice, you know. Yeah, yeah for sure. Fair. I just like, think it's not like a few years ago. Like starting to age. It's not like a few years ago where it was like can you upgrade to the MacBook Air? And we were like, no, the screen sucks. And we're like, can we upgrade to the MacBook Pro? And we're like, no, the keyboard sucks. It's like, now it's like, oh, you know, the apps might not be there now, but they'll probably get there. And it's super fast with a great battery life. So you'll probably love it for whatever you, you know, I think like I, I feel comfortable recommending it to people in a way that I haven't with Apple computers up until more recently. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a good place to wrap things up. We're running a little, a little long. Um, yeah, let's, let's hit the, the games that we've been playing this week. So I, I can start this off. I've literally just been playing Assassin's Creed Valhalla. I'm writing a story about it for the site. Uh, it should be live already as you're listening to this podcast. Um, I talked about it last week. I, I won't rehash anything. It's a massive game. I still really like it. It has a lot of issues. Um, yeah, it's it's quite a glitchy game, but it can also be beautiful at times. And it's probably my favorite entry in the Assassin's Creed series next to uh, Black Flag. I almost wish it wasn't an Assassin's Creed game because it really has very little to do with the franchise, just like Odyssey. But um, it's a great indication of what to expect from uh, the Xbox Series X and PlayStation 5 in terms of visuals and, and gameplay and stuff like that, especially in terms of what Ubisoft is planning. Um, so, so yeah, uh, Be Bennett, what have you what have you been playing? Wait, can I can I may I please ask a question, sir? You you may, sir. Thank you. Um, so I've been telling people that like ask me Valhalla, I'm like, have you played Origins? And then have you played Odyssey? And if they say no to either of those, I say just play those instead because you can buy them for like 15 bucks and they look very similar to me. Uh, but I haven't played Valhalla. So I'm interested into your experience. Like these three sort of modern open world Assassin's Creed games have like I played Odyssey and Origins and I found them both to be pretty similar about the end of the day. Um do you feel like Valhalla brings something extra to the table beyond better graphics and like next gen compatibility? Or is it just sort of like 
you know, Assassin's Creed again. A good game nonetheless. Yeah, it it is Assassin's Creed again. For me, part of the appeal of the series has always been like what eras of history I'm interested in. So uh, Origins was was ancient Egypt. That was cool. That's something that I've always been fascinated by since I was a kid. Um, Odyssey was ancient Greece, which I could not possibly care less about it, but I still (laughs) really, really liked that game. Yeah. So it, it didn't it didn't like hook me in the same way, but I was able to look past that because it was it was a really, really good game. And a, I, I still think it was a big step forward for the series. Mm-hmm. Um, Valhalla is basically the same as Origins with like a nicer coat of paint on it and with Vikings and medieval Europe, which is probably one of my favorite eras of history. So for me, there's like that extra layer of appeal just because it's it's like I you get to climb these like sick gothic castles and like fight with swords and shields and stuff. Yeah. So I, yeah. I like that. And that that's why I think the game has been so fun for me, but you're, you're not wrong. Like it's, it's not that different than Odyssey or origins. It's still in that same sort of, this really isn't an Assassin's Creed game anymore. It's just an RPG action, RPG open world game with like the, the AC name tacked onto it. Yeah. Yeah. I loved origins. So maybe I'll, I just want a shot once I sort of have some free gaming time carved out. Um, but yeah, if you want me to go into what I've been playing, it's nothing really new. Um, I've been trying to play some new new games. It hasn't went well. Uh, when Alex and I were away at the Porsche thing the other day, we did uh, we tried to play Telling Lies, the Sam Barlow game from last year, the sort of the spiritual oh, cool. successor to her story. Uh, but the MacBook 2016 wouldn't run it, uh, which sucked. Even though it's like <laughs> a very simple game, it's kind of like you're just like looking at a PC interface. Like it looks like a fake MacBook home screen, essentially like desktop interface, and that's like the game. Uh, but it wouldn't run it. Well, it would, but very leggy. Anyway, so we tried to play that. It wouldn't work, but I'm hoping to, you know, maybe over this weekend, we can sit down and play it. We really liked her story. It was like one of my favorite games of all time, honestly, at this point. So I'm hoping Telling Lies can stack up to that. And it was on sale, so it was worth it. And then uh, still just crushing a lot of Hades. I've uh, made it to the boss a couple of times, but I haven't beat him yet. But uh, I, I should have. I'll tell you guys that. I should have. I should be done it. Okay. You should have. Yeah. I, I should be lag? done Hades. Did you blame it on the lag? No, it's no lag. It's only me, but uh, it just was close. And like, I thought I had it and I didn't. And it was a sad moment, but I, and I haven't like picked it up for like a day or two since then. Uh, it's one of those, but I'll get back into it. And I'm like this close. I'll, I'll beat it soon. Um, and then also Alex and I bought Absu, uh, which is like oh, nice. I remember people behind Journey. That. And it's like Journey, but you're swimming. Yeah, it's a really nice game to play at night. And it's just like really chill. You're swimming through this water and there's like big fish and you do these like really simple puzzles that I'm hoping will get harder. But uh, one time, a long time ago, when Alex and I first started like sort of playing games together, she was like, my ideal game would just be a game where you're just swimming. Um, and I don't want like, out <laughs> she can't swim very well in real life. So she just like wanted to swim in a game. So I was like, okay, cool. And then I like saw this absolute game go on sale and I bought it and she's been having a blast just swimming around. So uh, we've been playing those. That's awesome. Them. Uh, what about you, John? What have you been playing, John? Yeah, I've been playing a few different things. Uh, I've returned to Apex Legends, which I haven't really oh. played significantly since probably this time last year. I have yeah. been playing a lot of Apex. I'll just say that. I forgot yeah. forgot to mention that. I, I hopped on with some buddies. We were like, let's, let's play Apex. We haven't played that in a while. And I realized that I hadn't played it in a year because I was like, oh, they have all the holiday decorations up. That's weird. And then I was like, wait, it's the holidays. I haven't played it in a year. Holiday game type is sick. But yeah, is it? The, 
yeah, the holiday game type is fun. Um, I got a few wins under my belt, which was nice uh, considering I haven't played it in so long. Um, so yeah, that was really nice. The main reason I got back into it as well was that uh, I got a new 144 hertz 1440p monitor, so I'm like really want to test out that Ooh. high high refresh rate. Nice. Um, so that was fun. Also, because of the new monitor, I was like, I'm finally going to be able to play Fallout 4. I bought that game <laughs> a really really long time ago on Steam because it was like dirt cheap on sale. And at the time, I had an ultra wide monitor, and for some reason, Fallout 4 just refuses to support ultra wide in any sense. Like, it wouldn't even yeah, let me run it sucks. in like windowed mode. It would just crash every single time I launched the game. So it's just wow. been sitting in my Steam library unplayed. But now that I have a not ultra wide monitor as my main monitor, I can at least launch and play the game, which is great. But Bethesda did some really weird stuff with it. I found out that like there's like a 60 frame per second cap on it because. They like really. timed animations and stuff like that in the game to the frame rate. So you can't run it at a higher frame rate than 60 or it'll just break stuff, which is super weird. Interesting. Um, Sounds like a Bethesda game. Yeah. That, yeah, definitely a Bethesda game, but that's been fun. And then the last thing uh, I've been like eyeing up Xbox Game Pass on PC because it's finally getting a lot of titles that I'm like actually interested in. Um, and then they put it on sale, uh, I think starting today for you get three months for a dollar and i'm like that's a sick deal um so i signed up for that and i'm going to try out sea of thieves and a couple other games with some buddies so i'm kind of excited to dive into that oh i have a uh, sea of thieves yeah. date on friday with my friends <laughs> oh nice yeah yeah I'm, I'm definitely excited to try that out i know doom eternal is coming and i've been wanting to play that um and i think some of the destiny 2 stuff is coming in the new year to the pc version of game pass so i'm kind of intrigued with that destiny 2 is in a really weird spot right now and i want to try out the new expansion but i don't want to fork out 60 dollars for it so if it comes to game pass i'm like sick i'll just try it and if it's cool great and if it's not cool which is probably how it's going to be then i haven't wasted much money on it i don't have very many games from it but right now on my pc i just have like resident evil 7 which i'm too scared to play i found out and uh like forza halo and hellblade Alan Wake. Game Pass is uh, still the best deal in gaming oh, I've, yeah. I've ever encountered. Really, it's it's so insane. Yeah, um, I yeah, I think that's a good good place to to wrap things up. We've gone a little bit over what our target time was, which we always do. But thanks for listening to the Syrupcast. Be sure to drop us a review on iTunes. It really helps with the ranking of the show. Um, another thing that I wanted to mention is that we have a gift guide that's live on the site. It went up last week. It's obviously going to be there until. Christmas and after Christmas, uh, Bennett put a ton of work into it and there's various cool gift ideas in there. Do you want to just talk about it really briefly, Bennett, and just give the listeners like an idea of what to expect from it? Sure. I put a lot of work into my Photoshop. No, I'm kidding. Um, basically, <laughs> uh, basically there's just like three tiers. There's like a $100 or less tier. There's a 100 to $200 tier. And then there's sort of like an over $200 tier that sort of encompasses um, all the bigger items, laptops and I don't know, cameras. We got a camera on there, phones, you know, there's more expensive items, but still sort of find their way in people's lives. All the new next gen consoles are on there. Um, but we've got some cooler things on there too. Uh, one thing that if you've followed the mobile syrup gift guide since I've sort of started uh, putting my hands into them, uh, Velcro ties are on there. If you have a nerd in your Ooh, life who has cables, you need those. You need them. They're like 
I don't know. I, in the last two years, I probably went through four to five rolls of Velcro ties myself, just cable managing everything. And like you, they get lost Me or too. you like give them to people who like show up at your house and their cables are a mess. You're like, okay, here's some three Velcro ties, like change your life. Um, <laughs> So yeah, those are the biggest thing on there for me is the Velcro ties, but there's a lot of cool stuff on there. And if you're looking for ideas for like the nerds in your life or just some people who maybe aren't even that techie, but could use a little help with certain areas, there's some things there and like, you know, Kobo's, e-readers. It's uh, a lot of stuff that we've used this year that we really liked, I think too, which is good. Um, I always like to, to try and make the gift guides as much as possible things that we've used. So I think that that's a, a good, a good point. The, uh, the Fuji XT200 was one of my favorite things to review this year, and it's on there. So I don't know about you guys. You got nice. an 8-bit toe controller on there, Pat. You like that one? Yeah, that, that was yeah. One, of, one of my my choices I, for, I think, for xCloud. Mm-hmm. I think the Surface Laptop Go made it on there too, which was hands down I, my favorite laptop that I reviewed this year. Like, I don't think it's the Surface Laptop incredible. Go. I think it's the Surface Laptop 3. But you can go oh, off about the Go, uh, the Go if you want. So <laughs> oh, guess what, well, listeners? The 3 might not be the choice. It might be the Go. John has the screen. They're, they're both great laptops. I just really like the Laptop Go because it was so small, kind of like the the 12-inch MacBook being so tiny. It was just like, it felt so like small and petite and cute, and I loved it from a power performance perspective probably not the best choice but uh just from like that compact perspective great laptop absolutely love it cool Cool. nice so you can find me on twitter at at patrick underscore rourke and of course on mobilesurf.com bennett where can people find you uh you can find me pretty much everywhere at the brad fad uh that includes twitter facebook instagram uh xbox live that kind of stuff and mobilesurf.com, of course. And John, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me at John underscore Lamont on Twitter. Uh, that's at J-O-N underscore L-A-M-O-N-T. And of course, on mobilesurf.com. And as always, you can find all of our content on mobilesurf.com and also follow the site on Twitter and Instagram at at mobilesurf. Thanks for listening. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com